Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. You know, one of the uh, great blessings of trying to seek together to be a more cross-cultural church is that as you begin to build relationships with one another, you start to see your own uh, cultural blind spots in new ways, things that you might have overlooked or not, not seen before. And I remember uh, it was maybe four or five months ago, I was talking to my brother Willie Addison, and we were talking, and he said, you know, one thing I've noticed is that we don't talk about heaven much uh, in this church. He said, in the African-American church, we talked about heaven all the time. It was a big part of our preaching and our singing and our talking. And so, you know, after, as is typical of me, a brief and stupid moment of defensiveness, you know, well, here's why we don't do it this way. I said, okay, well, let's talk. Uh, Why don't we? And as Willie and I talked uh, about that, uh, you know, there's lots of reasons, I think. But as Willie stated and pointed out to me, you know, coming out as the African-American church has out of centuries of slavery and poverty and violence and suffering. Uh, It cultivates a practiced placing of your hope on a world where the joys of that world far outweigh the sorrows of this world. And it's something that we need uh, to receive as Christians is to learn that cultivated practice of longing and hoping for heaven. As Willie and I talked, uh, we noticed that there's really two uh, pitfalls that we want to avoid as Christians. One is a kind of escapism that focuses so much on heaven that it doesn't inform our lives here in this world, our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families, uh, with real wisdom for living and and living in this world, right? We don't want to play into the common stereotype that Christians are too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good in this world. And so if that's one pitfall, the other one is that we end up with a faith that's entirely earthbound right, that doesn't live with expectation or hope, that reduces the faith down to what we can see and touch and prove and know, we want to live with a kind of imagination that opens up this world to the unseen world that the scriptures tell us is is just as real as the world that we can see. And so, uh, this Advent, we are going to be preaching a series of sermons in the book of Revelation. Here's how Revelation works. Most of us uh, have avoided it uh, entirely uh, in our Bibles, right? It's the weird part at the end with all the visions and symbols and numbers and creatures. We think that it's either uh, too otherworldly to be of any value or else too confusing and focused on the end times and speculative to really inform life in this world all that much. And yet, uh, John the evangelist who wrote Revelation wrote it Uh, to a very real group of people, a real church facing very real suffering in the ancient world. They were uh, perhaps at one of the most intense times of persecution and violence uh, that the early church went through. And so into that community, uh, John's writing wasn't, hey guys, it's not so bad, imagine what heaven will be like. No, it was to give them a glimpse into a world that is more real and more lasting and more permanent than their momentary sorrows. 
right? It was to awaken their imagination, to see the world as it really is, not as it might at first appear to be. You know, imagination is more than simply uh, imagining things that aren't true. It's actually the ability to imagine what's not seen, right? There's a difference between what's not real and what's not seen. And so as such, imagination is crucial for the life of faith, to live in light of things unseen, to believe that the unseen is just as real uh, as the seen. And so uh, with that in mind, we are going to turn uh, to a series in Revelation. And this morning, our reading is in Revelation chapter 4. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is Revelation 4, 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. Our greatest need, uh, each and every one of us, every man, woman, and child uh, in this room today and around the world, our greatest need, each of us, is to see the beauty of the Lord, to behold God as he is in his beauty and in his majesty. David, the psalmist, uh, in Psalm 27, finds himself in a place of intense suffering. Uh, he describes his, his state as having an army camped around him, enemies turned against him, his very life in danger. And what David prays in that moment, that moment where life is pressing in on him from the outside and he's not sure if he's going to make it, he doesn't pray what I think I might pray in that situation. Uh, Lord, get rid of the army encamped around me. God, relieve me of this danger, of this pressure, right? L relieve my suffering. Instead, in Psalm 27, this is what David prays. One thing I asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing David was after, that he would see the beauty of the Lord in the presence of his temple. Because what David knew and what all of us need to know 
is that when we're suffering, when we're struggling, when we feel the brokenness of this life pressing in on us, that what we most need isn't the relief of our pain or the fulfillment of our desires. What we most need in the midst of that is a vision, a vision of God's beauty, a vision of God's glory that helps all of those other things to make sense around it, the thing, something that transcends the suffering of this life. You know, I don't know uh, what's going on in each and every one of your lives this morning, but as your pastor, I do know what's going on in a lot of your lives. And I know that we are nearing the end of a year where many of us have seen real, honest suffering, where we've all of us experienced pain. Uh, some of you have experienced this year deep pain and disappointment in your relationships, pain in your marriage. Some of you have spent the year dealing and wrestling with longings that remain unfulfilled, Longings for a different job, one that would allow you to meet your needs. Longings for freedom from an addiction. Longings for a family. Others of you have spent this year, honestly, just trying to keep your head above water. Right? Some of you have welcomed children into the world this year, and what began with joy and gladness is now the struggle uh, to wake up each morning and to keep going. Right? Others of you are struggling uh, through jobs uh, that, are, that you have bosses you don't see eye to eye with. Right? All of us know what it is uh, to be in the midst of the struggles and suffering of this life. And what we need is what David longed for, to learn in the midst of that, to see God as he is in all of his beauty and his holiness and his glory. And in that, to find a kind of peace, a kind of life uh, that does transcend in some way uh, the anxieties of this world. And so this section of Revelation is one of, one of the most beautiful chapters of the Bible, maybe only surpassed by Revelation 5, which we get to next week. This chapter is really an answer to David's prayer, that he would see the beauty of the Lord in his temple. This is a vision of God's beauty in his heavenly temple. And so what we want to look at today is, is the one that we see when we see God, uh, how we are able to see him and how we respond uh, when we do in fact see him. Our story begins as John uh, is taken up into heaven. He is physically uh, exiled on an island prison, on an island called Patmos, sent there by the most powerful empire in the world. And there he receives a vision uh, where Jesus is at first dictating to him letters to send to the churches that are struggling under the midst of persecution. And then here he is invited to come, to come up. And he says that he sees a door standing open in heaven. And that image of a door between heaven and earth really is what the rest of Revelation is about. Revelation is about the curtain, the veil that separates heavenly reality from earthly reality. Being opened or pulled back such that we get a glimpse beyond the seen world that we see around us. And John is invited to come in through this door through this veil, to see the reality that lays behind our reality, to see reality as it really is. And what he sees uh, as he steps through the door is the throne room that's at the center of heaven. And this throne room is depicted uh, very clearly and very unmistakably in language that echoes the temple in which Israel worshiped. The idea is, is that on the other side of this door, on the other side of the barrier between heaven and earth, is the reality behind our worship, right? That all of our worship here in this world, all the worship that went on day and night in the temple in Jerusalem, 
while it happened in this very real felt world, that there was an unseen reality just beyond it that corresponded to it. The Old Testament uses the language of uh, the temple, the, the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. That was God's footstool, that when God sat on his throne, his feet sat in the center of the temple. And now it's like John is getting a vision of the throne room itself where God himself is seated. And it's described with a lot of the same symbols and a lot of the same imagery as the temple. The appearance is one of jewels. Uh, The Holy of Holies is surrounded by seven lampstands. He's attended by priests. There's a sea before the throne, just as there was a, a bronze sea, a giant bowl of water in front of the temple. This is John getting a vision of the other side of worship. Right, if worship ever feels to you, sometimes prayer and worship, dealing with God, can feel like you're just going through the motions of something and you wonder if it's really real. Right, you pray and there's no immediate response. You sing and it doesn't, you don't feel anything in your heart. Right, sometimes it feels like you're just on one side of a game of catch. You're just throwing a ball out into a field and it lays flat. And here in Revelation, we get a picture of the other side. The one who's catching and throwing the ball back to us when we pray, when we sing, when we, when we go to him and worship. We get a vision of the throne room. And the, the way that this picture is painted, it's like an impressionist painting. right? It, it uses symbols, it uses colors, it uses ideas to paint a picture of the glory of God in his temple. But it is an impressionist painting, right? It's not photorealism. This isn't, uh, John is incredibly humble about even trying to describe what he sees on the throne, the one that's on the throne. In fact, he doesn't try. Instead, he talks about everything that goes on around the one that's on the throne. And it's like an impressionist painting, right? You shouldn't try to draw what's described here, especially when we get to the living creatures with all the eyes and the wings, right? This isn't meant to be a scientific description, but a poetic expression of what John sees. It's him trying to put human words on what's indescribable. And he starts uh, by describing the appearance that surrounds the one on the throne. The only name he gives uh, to God in this entire section is the enthroned one. He's the one on the throne. And he doesn't even try to describe the appearance, right? uh, Israelite religion all throughout the Old Testament is, is incredibly humble when it comes to describing the appearance of God. Right, you notice there's nowhere here does John say, I looked on the throne and there was an old man about six foot eight, long white beard, deep voice. Right, no, instead he says, when I looked, I saw color. Right, the colors he describes, jasper and carnelian. Um, everybody knows what that looks like, right? Jasper and carnelian. Even in the ancient world, these weren't stones that people really knew or saw or dealt with a whole lot. We think he's talking about green and red were the basics of the colors. But it it shines out and radiates out. God is often described in the Old Testament as the rock of Israel, right? He's also often described in geological terms, like a rock that's unmoving and unmovable. And here John sees that the rock of Israel is glorious and he's bright and he shines out in color. After that, uh, after this appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Right Again, this is impressionism. Is it, a, is it a rainbow that's colored like an emerald? Is it an emerald that's shaped like a rainbow? I don't know, but it's a glorious emerald-colored rainbow that, that emanates out from around him. From there, seven spirits, uh, seven fires uh, on, 
on lampstands, which are told to the seven spirits of God. This is a way of describing uh, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that, that surrounds God. He's described in these, uh, these pictures of absolute glory and beauty. The sound uh, that he hears, the sound that he hears in verse 5 is described as one of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne. This is the language that often attends to God in Exodus when he appears to Moses. It's often in the midst of cloud and thunder and lightning. This is John saying, this is that God. This is the God that your forefathers worshipped, the God that no one has seen or beheld. This is that God. And then there's the beings that surround him here. Right? He's surrounded um, by 24, what are called here elders. One translation puts it 24 ancient ones, which I think gets at the reality that these aren't, uh, these aren't normal human beings. These are angelic representations of the people of God. Right? We believe that there's 24 of them because it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel together with the 12 apostles of the church, making up one people of God before the throne, worshiping God. They're priests and kings representing the fullness of our human identity and created intent. Right? They wear white like priests, but they wear, thrones and, they wear crowns and sit on thrones like priests. These, repre- these are angelic representations of the people of God Worshiping God, attending to God, there in the throne room of God. There's also a sea there in the throne room, right out past the 24 ancient ones. We're told that that sea is a sea like crystal. You know, the sea in the ancient world, especially in the, uh, in the biblical world, the Old Testament, Uh, The sea is always a sign and a symbol of chaos and evil, right? For the ancient people, it represented that thing in life that was too powerful and too chaotic and too dangerous for them to control, right? Think about the experience of what it would have been like. In our world, we know, what, weeks at a time ahead of when a hurricane's going to come, right? We we track it on our phones. We try to figure out, is it going to go north of us? Is it going to miss us to the west? What's going to happen? In the ancient world, it just got cloudy, (laughs) And then you felt the pressure change, and then a storm came that could threaten your life. And so here, uh, we see all throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New, God demonstrating his power over the sea, his power over the chaos. Right? God in creation separates the sea from the dry land. When his people are fleeing uh, from, from Pharaoh in Egypt, he divides the Red Sea so that they can go through it to new life. Jesus shows his power over the sea when he calms the storm, when he walks on the water. God shows his power over the world through his power over the sea. And here in the throne room, we're told the sea is like glass. It's so completely at peace, so completely at calm, that it's like crystal. This shows that in the throne room, we see the world as it really is, where God reigns from his throne in such a way that all of the chaos and trouble of this life is stilled before him. Right? When we face things in our lives that seem chaotic, that seem insurmountable, God reigns over the sea. He reigns over the chaos of this world. And around his throne, there is no disorder, there is no suffering, there's no pain or no chaos. He rules among it, he rules beyond it. And so the sea is calm. And then out on the other side of the sea are the four living creatures. One like an ox, one like a lion, 
one like a man and one like an eagle, surrounded with eyes, surrounded with wings. Um, this is a honestly kind of freaky image of what's going on uh, in heaven right now. John is using the language, and it corresponds, of course, to the reality, we believe, of what Isaiah before him and Ezekiel before him saw when they received visions of heaven. Cherubim and seraphim, these angels that are covered in eyes to show that they see and know everything, they, their eyes and vision sees further than ours. Wings to show that their ability to, 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 to be places transcends our ability. And here they bear the, 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 the appearance of the created world. Like different animals, including human beings, around and worshiping God. What commentators believe is going on here, and I think they're right, is that we see a concentric circle of worship around the throne. That at its center is God himself, the very glory, beauty, and holiness of God. Out from him is the church, the redeemed people of God worshiping God. And out from them are these representatives of the entire created world. Men and beasts all together, the created world worshiping God. And this fits with the biblical storyline that worship of God begins in his presence in the Trinity itself. It radiates out to his church, his redeemed people, and one day it will fill the entire world. One day every being on earth will worship God. And that's seen here in, uh, in a microcosm in the temple, uh, the heavenly temple. And what do these creatures uh, say when they worship God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This again is an echo from Isaiah. You know, when the, when the biblical writers wanted to emphasize something, when, when a Hebrew poet wanted to emphasize something, uh, we, in, you know, if you're writing an email and want to emphasize something, you might put your sentence in all caps uh, you might put too many exclamation points behind something uh, to draw your attention to, this is really important. Well, in Hebrew, what they would do if something was really important, if they wanted to, to underline it, put it in all caps and throw exclamation points behind it, was they would repeat it. They would repeat it twice to show emphasis. If they really wanted to show emphasis, they would, put, they would repeat it three times. And so this is a Hebrew idiom to say, how holy is God? He's holy, holy, holy. He, how, how glorious, how beyond us, how magnificent is God? He's holy, holy, holy. And these beings are in this chorus of worshiping the holiness of God continually, day and night, holy, holy, holy. Well, how can we see this holy God? Throughout the scriptures, there's a problem that attends to God's holiness, uh, which is that because God is so holy, so uh, morally pure and beyond us, uh, so transcendently above and beyond the created world, that humanity can't go into the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. Right? You know yourself. You know that no one would describe you as holy once, let alone three times. Right? That your life is unholy, that you are a mess, that you wrestle and struggle and sin. We all do. So how can people like us ever hope to look on the beauty and the holiness of God in a way that can join us to him or we can have life with God. You know, the holiest place uh, this side of the heavenly temple in the Old Testament was the Holy of Holies, that, that place at the very center of Israel's temple. 
And it was so holy that, that only one person could go into that place, and that person could only go once a year. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only go on the Day of Atonement with sacrifice. And in fact, even then, it was dangerous enough to go that he went with a rope tied around him and a bell. Uh, in case he died, somebody could hear the bell ring or, or stop hearing it ring, and they could get a group of people and pull his body out. Because the holiness of God was dangerous enough to unholy people that he, even the, this person that was told to go by God with his sacrifice, might just drop dead. And yet here's John in the Holy of, Holy beyond, the Holy of Holies beyond the Holy of Holies, the holiness of God's temple. How can he go there? How can we go there? Well, there's a couple of cues uh, in this text. And the first is in verse 3 when we're told, and around the throne was a rainbow. Around the throne was a rainbow. This is a, a beautiful picture that in the very throne room of God himself, there is a sign and a reminder of his grace and his covenant with humanity. If you remember uh, the rainbow uh, right after the flood, the, the flood of Noah, God sets his rainbow in, his sky, in the sky as a sign of his promise that he'll never again destroy the world for their sin, for our sin. Right, it's interesting, in Hebrew, there's actually not a word for rainbow. Uh, so the word that's used there is bow, the same word that would be used for a soldier's bow in the ancient world, the bow that they would use to send arrows uh, at their enemy. And God says that, that his justice that, that lashes out, that lashed out in the flood, bringing justice to humanity, that his justice, his bow, his divine and heavenly bow will no longer be bent towards earth, but will now be bent up towards heaven. It's the beginning of the promise that he would actually take into his own person the justice that human sin deserves. That the arrows launched by the justice of God's bow wouldn't reach towards humanity, but would actually pierce the throne room of God himself. So that when God looks out from his throne, what does he see there? He sees the rainbow. He sees his grace. He sees his commitment to redeeming people, to redeeming humanity, the commitment that would eventually lead to the death of the son. Right there in the throne room. Right? God doesn't look on his world with rose-colored glasses. Right? He sees us as we are. He sees us uh, in our sin, in our rebellion, in our addiction, in our wickedness. He doesn't look out on us with rose-colored glasses, but he does look out on us through the rainbow. Through the rainbow of his covenant promise, through his grace and his goodness. Right there in the midst of his holiness is his commitment to grace. The commitment that ultimately leads him to die, the Son of God to die for the salvation of sinners so that we can have access uh, to the vision of God. Who's the one that invites John the very beginning of verse four, or chapter 4 when the door stands open in heaven and he says, come up here? This is the voice of Jesus. It's Jesus that first appears to John at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It's Jesus who invites John to come up, to come up through the door between heaven and earth, to come up here to behold the beauty of God. Right? The voice of Jesus, the voice of the one who fulfilled the promise 
of the covenant, the promise of the rainbow, is the one who now comes through the door and invites John, come up. You're welcome here. You're included here. Right? Because the door of heaven opened at Christmas, and Jesus stepped through the door to become one of us, born just as we are, in the body, in the flesh. Because when he died on the cross, the curtain between the holy of holies and humanity was ripped in two, Jesus can now invite John, and he can now invite each one of us, come here, come up here, come to my Father, come to your Father, come and see God and dwell with God. Because of Jesus' talk of heaven isn't mere fanciful thinking, it's not pure imagination, it's not escapism, a desire to live in another world. Heaven has invaded this world in Jesus, and he invites us to come to come up, to come and to be with him, to come and to dwell with him. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, 16. Because we have access to God through Christ, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's with confidence draw near to this throne, to this throne of grace. We can draw near to God through worship, through prayer, knowing that God in Christ has welcomed us and included us and paid the price to invite us to come up, to come to be with him. C.S. Lewis put it in his invitation to always come further up and further in to the reality of who God is and his holiness and his grace and his love. And when we see God, how do we respond? we see God in his holiness and grace, what do we do? When we find our place with the living creatures and the 24 elders, singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These 24 elders fall down when they hear the creatures sing their song. They fall down on their faces and they remove their crowns and they lay them at Jesus' feet. This shows us that the only response, the only fitting response to the vision of God's holiness and his beauty and his grace and his love is worship. It's to fall down humble before him, to take off our crowns and to lay them before his feet. You know, we said that these, these 24 elders represent humanity as it's intended and redeemed to be. Each one of us, uh, Peter tells us, uh, is made to be a priest and a king. A kingdom of priests is the way he puts it, right? That each of us are priests called to go before God in prayer, and each one of us are kings and queens, right? We've been given a part of God's creation under his rule that we're responsible for our lives, our jobs, our, our wealth, whether it's big or small, our families, our relationships, our neighborhoods, our cities, that we rule a certain part of God's creation under him. We've been given certain blessings, certain gifts, certain resources, but the reason that we're given, anything that we're given, is just so that one day we can lay it at Jesus' feet and say, this is yours. Everything I have is yours. Everything that belongs to me is yours. Everything belongs to you. We lay our crowns down before uh, the feet of Jesus. You know, uh, religious legalism will never get you to the place where you say, everything about me is yours. Every bit of my life is yours, right? Legalism will get you to a place where you can say, all right, God, 10% of my money is yours, right? I'll give you 10% because that's what you said, 
And so you're going to get 10%. Is that before tax? Is it after tax? Let me work out the math. Only the gospel, only a glimpse of the holiness and grace of Jesus can lead a human being to say, God, everything I have is yours. Not just 10%, but anything you ask, I lay down before you. Legalism might lead you to say, God, you know what? The first 10 minutes of my day are yours. I'm going to have my quiet time. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do the right thing. Only the gospel can lead you to say, every second of every day belongs to you, God. Everything you've given me, my life itself, my children, my family, every bit of my life, I fall down and I lay it down at your feet. This life of worship, falling down and casting crowns at Jesus' feet, uh, is what's meant to be the heavenly vision of our everyday mundane lives. Every day living our lives, humble before the face of Jesus and laying down our lives before him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, help us to respond to your invitation to come. To come to your Father, to come into your presence, to come into your grace. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to live our lives with the imagination of faith that views this world, um, the world of heaven, the world to come, is just as real uh, as the world that we're presented with every morning. Lord, help us to live our lives by faith, uh, worshiping you before the throne. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sweetest promises of the gospel to me is the promise uh, that he who began a good work in us by faith uh, will see it through to completion. Uh, that he hasn't, uh, God is not the kind of God who leaves half-finished projects, uh, but that he will follow through uh, and get us home and so receive this promise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.